Welcome to It's Mercedes, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. I'm your host, Mercedes, founder of Libertas Sisters, and every episode I invite a guest to discuss topics such as femininity, relationships, the culture war, self-reliance, politics, and freedom. And let's be honest, whatever else I'm in the mood for. So pop in those headphones, pour yourself a beverage, and settle in. Let's get this episode started. How do you pronounce your name? Mercedes. Mercedes. Okay. Name, that's why it's, it's Mercedes. Because everybody's like, "How do you say your name?" It's Mercedes. <laughs> Real <it>. original. <laughs> welcome to another episode of It's Mercedes, and today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Julie Mastrini. She is a writer at EV Magazine, director of marketing and media bias ratings for AllSides.com. And um, you can find her and some of her writings at juliemenestrini.com. And thank you so much, Julie, for joining me today. Thank you for the invite. Excited to be here. Yeah, I am so excited to have, especially I'm, let me, how do I put this? I have a problem when it comes to the news, as in like, I'm kind of addicted to it and I'm constantly consuming it, probably more than is considered healthy. <laughs> But I really was excited to have you on because I think that the news and the media landscape um, is interesting right now, to say the least. And I I thought it'd be interesting with uh, your work with all sides to kind of come on and decode the media and kind of help my listeners figure out how to inform themselves. So if you could take a moment and introduce yourself and let us know what is it that you do with allsides.com? Yeah, um, so like you said, I'm the director of marketing and bias ratings. I've been with Allsides for almost four years now. Uh, and basically the mission of Allsides is to free people from filter bubbles so they can better understand the world and each other. So the idea is that the internet really locks us inside filter bubbles. Um, and this is because we're only exposed to uh, media outlets and viewpoints that we already agree with. Um, social media companies and even search engines have an interest in feeding us content that we're going to like. So we often get stuck in a bubble and we're not hearing other perspectives, hearing alternative views. So All Sides is seeking to help people get out of their bubble and encounter new perspectives, encounter new information that maybe they're not hearing inside their, their little echo chamber. Um, so we do that by providing a balanced news feed and media bias ratings, and then also opportunities for civil discourse. So talking to people who actually think differently than you. So yeah, so we rate uh, media bias in a number of ways, but we will basically say whether a media outlet is on the left, right, or center. And then we use those ratings to create a balanced news feed. If you go to allsides.com, you can see that it says news from the left, right, and center. And we'll even show you how media outlets on different sides are covering the exact same story. So you can see the differences in their headlines, the differences in the information that they're including or not including, the different word choice that they're using, um, especially for really controversial news stories. Uh, That can be very interesting. Um, That's awesome because I think especially now, you know, there was a time where technology, of course, was new. It was awesome. And now it has created those bubbles that you're talking about, where in order to keep you on the app, the problem is, is that they want to continue to feed you stuff that you're going to be interested in and clicking on, uh, which you end up not hearing either side. And I think it's really good to have that kind of balance. So you can not only 
it's not to necessarily confirm your opinions, but also to open yourself up to those other opinions so you can make a true assessment if what you are seeing and what you believe, like how you have formed your opinion is a good opinion. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. And and you'll see a lot of times people will say like, I think the most recent example I can come up with is there was a viral tweet of a girl who said that uh, she thought that in the Kyle Rittenhouse case that he had shot black men, but he hadn't. And um, she was like, just from her media bubble, her filter bubble, that's what she thought. Um, And then she started to make kind of a conscious effort to get out of her bubble. And she found new information that made her realize that uh, that wasn't really what happened. So that's just one example. But there's many, many ways in which, um, you know, exposing yourself to new information or to the other side of the argument can help you to either bolster your own argument or to have you have some humility and say, oh, actually I was wrong about this. And like, oh, whoops. (laughs) Yeah. And then that's happened to me a ton. Like I used to really be in a media bubble and then, and I had very different beliefs back then. And I started to say, well, what does the other side say about this in their own words, instead of how is my side characterizing their arguments? Which I think is an important, different distinction because, you know, there is some animus between the sides, especially right now. So how they're characterizing them um, can, with just some managing of words and formation, can kind of already instill their bias and create an image for them, which will make you more willing to dismiss that other side and that other opinion. Exactly. They'll like frame the argument in a way that maybe the person who holds that belief, they wouldn't state it that way or maybe it's obscuring the main point or there, or maybe even one side will choose the worst arguments from the other side and be like, well, they think this because this is their opinion and, or because of these reasons. And, and those are terrible reasons. Whereas somebody who actually believes that would say, well, no, I believe these things because of these other reasons, whatever. So they'll miss the point. They'll, they'll obscure things. So, so all sides really seeks to help reveal all of that and just allow people to think for themselves. We're not trying to tell people what to think. A lot of media outlets are, they have a partisan agenda. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Um, they think that especially the major legacy media outlets are still adhering to these traditional journalistic standards of objectivity and fairness when a lot of them have really strayed from that. Even if they might say that they're being objective and fair, the reality is that they're not. And we have ways that we can demonstrate and measure that. Well, and that's an interesting because that kind of leads into my next question, which is, well, first, speaking of the legacy media, and we kind of talked on how like the internet and algorithms and everything like that. So my qu- my question is, is in your opinion, is this w- what I see as clear and blatant bias? And of course, I'm really in the, like, not everybody's like me, but has that always been the case? I mean, specifically, you just brought up Kyle Rittenhouse, right? In that case. So a lot of the misinformation that came um, out from those occurrences from what happened with Kyle and during those riots came from legacy media, not all of it, but a lot of it. And then it wasn't until the trial happened that then all of a sudden you saw, I mean, I remember seeing a clip from CNN going like, how did we get this so wrong? You know what I mean? When it was clear to a lot of other people that what they were saying was wrong. So I'm just wondering, has that bias in journalism, in media always existed has it gotten worse or is it just more obvious to us right now because of how we consume information so quickly? And, or is it happening as a consequence of the internet and everything? Because 
it's, I mean, we are in a capitalist system. They're trying to make money. They're trying to get eyeballs on it. So they're using headlines <laughs> and Clickbait. bylines that are going to make you go and read the article or, you know, it's probably, probably a little bit of everything. So yeah. what do you, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I get asked a lot about how media bias has changed over time. And it's a little hard for me to give uh, uh, a solid answer just because I only know what I've seen in my lifetime. Um, yeah. And we, and it's hard to assess uh, the bias of reporting in the past when I wasn't actually there with the tools that we have today. Like, again, bringing it back to the Kyle Rittenhouse example, there were videos that were circulating online of the incident. Um pretty full videos. It wasn't just a short clip. It was like kind of the whole sequence. Yeah, of there was a lot of video. Yeah. So we could firsthand look at what happened and not have to have the media filter that information for us. They still were going to, they still did. Um, but the individual could still kind of look at what happened. Um, in the past, we didn't have tools like that. Right. Um, it was all being filtered through the media. And I think that it's just kind of come in waves. Like I think that um, during the founding of America, there was a lot of partisan news. Um, I, I think that this isn't necessarily a new thing. Uh, I don't think so either, especially, you know, if you go back to even during a Lincoln, the first time that he ran for president and, you know, you had the printing press and, and they were dogging each other. They were yep. talking like, it's not a new thing. I think right. it's just the tools are new. And because the tools are so fast and furious, it just feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah. You'll even notice like in the title of some old newspapers that were established, like in the 1800s, it, like my local, one of my local newspapers is like the Tribune Democrat, right? It has like the word Democrat in it. That kind of tells you like what the founders thought that paper was for. Right. And you'll see, or there's like the, I think there's like, I don't know, like the free statement or, or whatever, like you'll, you'll see in the name of some uh, newspapers that they sort of had a bit of an agenda um, or maybe they had some principles that were backing it up. Um, so I don't think that's new, but then you also did have, uh, the, this sort of journalistic standard that's more traditional, um, of activity, which is, we're just going to tell you what happened and you can interpret the events for yourself. That's really not happening today. Uh, there are very few outlets that take that approach. We see a lot of spin, a lot of slant, a lot of sensationalism. Yeah. Um, but like the Walter Cronkite era is something people often point to. He was like voted the most trusted man in America during his era. And, um, he is widely thought of as adhering to those sort of traditional journalistic standards of just giving you the facts. And yeah, you honestly did not know what his political leaning was. Um, right. Even though now that we have more information and historically, like he's believed to have been pretty left-leaning, but he at least managed in his professional space to come off as non-biased, which I think is something that, especially in journalism, should be practiced a little bit more. <laughs> right. And so we always say at all sides, like unbiased news doesn't exist. Um, meaning like reporters are always going to have to make choices, word choice, story choice. What stories do they highlight more than another? Like um, an outlet that's really heavily focusing on climate change. That's going to reveal a certain political bias versus an outlet that's focusing a lot about on focusing a lot on like gun laws or something like you're, you're going to be able to tell what the editors find important. Uh, so bias is always going to be there, but I do think there are some standards that journalists should at least strive to meet to uh, keep the audience's trust and to uh, ensure that the audience is not going to get the perception that what they're being fed is propaganda and that they're actually 
the writer trusts them to think for themselves. The writer is not going to obscure things, hide things, spin things, and is just going to tell them the facts of what's going on and let them decide for themselves. But what I'm hearing a lot in the in the space, uh, journalistic space, I talk to a lot of journalists, is that people don't believe that anymore. A lot of reporters think, no, we have a responsibility to like protect people or to ensure that they don't uh, hear misinformation or hear basically the wrong idea. I mean, blows my mind. I mean, that can take us into a whole other rabbit trail of issues of liberty and then like how journalism and the free press, they're, they're, in my opinion, that mentality is a bastardization of what the purpose of journalism is, specifically here in the United States as a staple of part of being of the First Amendment, which is, you know, free speech. So to kind of like filter that information and then also... I don't even, I can't even put my finger on like what would lead a person to have this almost overconfidence in themselves that they would believe that they should be the arbiters of dictating what we should be informed about. So I don't know, is it, is it like they think we're like the general public is dumb and unable to like, well, yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean? I think a lot of people have been sort of maybe fear mongered into thinking they're specific threats that they need to guard against, right? Or we can't have people thinking that, or we can't have people um, going down the rabbit hole to this line of thinking or this political ideology. We need people to embrace the political ideology that I think is best. So in order to do that, I need to shape information in a way that turns them towards what's right instead of what I think is wrong, right? So it is it is very different than how Americans conceived of the free press, as you said, in the past, where it was like, I'm just gonna give you the facts and let people decide for themselves instead of obscuring and and changing and and hiding things to suit a partisan agenda. And this is why we see bias in the press, because you do have reporters that believe they have some duty. And what I, what I, and and they do have a duty, but it's the the concept of what that duty is has changed. Um, When I talk to reporters, they now think they have a duty to, to impose change upon the world um, and to kind of fight for a cause and have their work reflect that cause. So this is why I make a distinction between journalism and advocacy journalism. Well, and I think it's fair to say, like, there's a difference, and we're talking about journalists specifically, not like, I think the idea, the way it should work is that journalists report and inform, and then activists can kind of take that information or organizations, you know what I mean? And they can, you know, freedom of assembly and they can form and they can create those. But I think when you're giving out information to the general public as with the label of journalism, you shouldn't be using that journalism to be an activist. Exactly. I think those be two separate things. Exactly. And that line is just totally blurred, especially because of the business model incentives of online, uh, of digital media, right? Uh, we talked a little bit, we alluded to clickbait, right? Um, these headlines that are meant to stoke your emotions so that you go, what? Oh my God, that's ridiculous. And then you click, right? So to stoke emotions, you have to add flavor and, and color and flair to the headline. And, and that ends up distorting the truth instead of just being like, X, Y, Z happened, right? It's, it's well, and especially since people now are so quick to consume information that they just see the headline and the byline or whatever preview you see on your feed, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And out of maybe like 10 that see it, there may be three that actually click on the article. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there was a, a recent example of that. Uh, Twitter has been doing some of its own editorializing on a 
know if you use Twitter, but they, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they have their like trending stories or, or what's happening section. And there was a recent story where it was talking about how, again, I, I recently assessed the media bias of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. So this is just top of mind. Um, but Twitter had this top story about how the, the judge had Rittenhouse select the jurors like from a hat. Yes. Um, and, and the way that the headlines were framed, it seemed like this was very odd and like, um, and, and something was wrong here and this was biased. Um, but when you clicked on one of the articles, it did say, AP did say that this judge always has the defendant do this. Um, so it's not really out of the ordinary for that judge. So is that even a story? Um, but the way that the headlines were framed and um, just the fact that the that Twitter was focusing on the story, it seemed like they were wanting you to think that this trial was unfair or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we just see this a lot. And Well, and then along those lines, so how would you say like the lay person? Because we're all trying to, I think more people are becoming awake to the fact that this bias exists. You know what I mean? Unless you're in some super hyper bubble, are you earnestly going to believe that legacy media such as CNN, uh, MSNBC, or Fox News even are unbiased? Right. Um, so how would you tell the layperson who is busy but still wants to be informed? How do you like decode what is the difference between news analysis and opinion first? Because I think we need to figure that out first. Right. Like what are some flags? What are some signs to kind of figure that out for that someone can keep in the back of their mind? Yeah. So it's pretty simple news analysis and opinion news is just what happened. This is, this is what happened. These are the facts. It's actually going to read more dry and bland because it's just giving you the facts. Analysis is when the writer takes those facts and helps you to interpret them and maybe, uh, tries to discern what they mean. And then opinion is what I think about what happened. So it's my opinion, my so in the In the news in general, are these, I mean, is the practice supposed to be that these things are labeled? You know what I mean? Yes, that's what it should be. But we increasingly see that it's not. Um, uh, to bring up AP again, the Associated Press, we've noticed that they are frequently... Uh, publishing analysis pieces that they're pushing as hard news. And it's and there are also other ways that you can tell whether you're reading news analysis or opinion. Um, and because you have to be aware that it's not always going to be labeled that way. It's not going to be labeled honestly. Um, so we have a, a, a resource guide on our site that I wrote called 12 Types of Media Bias. And it goes through, I think if people just read it once, they would get a good grasp of how bias manifests. And then when they are consuming the news, even if they're not, consuming the news all the time, they don't have a lot of time, they can start to identify some of the easy ways to spot bias, right? So this guide goes through some examples, like how do you notice sensationalism? How does that yeah. appear? Um, one that I actually, I actually just added to the guide is um, subjective qualifying adjectives. So this is when reporters kind of add adjectives in front of a word or phrase. So, um, you know, they'll say there was a sharp rise, a sinister warning, a disturbing rise, uh, a troubling trend, right? Dun, dun, that, dun. Yeah. So like the, the reporter is telling you what to think instead of just saying, you know, there's, there was a is, rise. Yeah. There was a rise and it's telling you to, to see it as bad. Right. So I think that's one of the main ways I would help people to kind of spot biases are the reporters inserting adjectives to tell you what to think and to manipulate your belief instead of just telling you what happened. Um, and we just see that all the time. One of the big ones during Trump was like debunked theory, baseless claim is baseless claim. And it's like, maybe the claim is baseless, but the reporter has to 
explain why instead of just calling it a baseless claim. Well, and right? I wonder, so you saw that, I mean, during Trump's presidency, the, I mean, that was when the term fake news became huge. And at first people were very dismissive of it. And then eventually with time, you were like, wait a minute, it is kind of fake. Like, I know that's a bit of a hyperbolic term, you know, but when you really got down to the nitty gritty of it, I don't know if fake necessarily is fair, but definitely, um, what's the word? Maybe I'm thinking like deceptive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, there's different ways that you can use the, the word fake news and some of which are legitimate, right? Like fake news could mean just a news story that was totally made up. Like it's not even true. Right. But I think the way that it's often used is to describe news that is being manipulated. Right. Or that, um, you know, the, the facts are misapplied or misrepresented or um, even like a misleading choice of what should be news. I think Trump was often using it that way to be like, that's not even a story. It's not even important. It's fake news. Um, and, uh, or, you know, uh, if the media like omits information, right. That would give you a different perception of the story. Well, yeah. News. Cause I think about, and so I was kind of thinking through this because I try to be somewhat even. Not that I'm completely trusting, but I like to like start there. And so for example, when I see something that is trending or some kind of news story that's starting to gain traction, like let's go back to the summer of 2020 when we had fiery, but mostly peaceful protests, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So is, are, is there a purposeful, now, I mean, I'm not going to give my opinion, but was there, is there a purposeful deception in some stories when you hear terms like that? Mostly peaceful protests, finally, but mostly peaceful. Or I think there was like a number thrown around, like 98% of the protests were peaceful. But then at the same time, you from the other side, you heard cities burning. Oh, yeah, 500, five, cities 500 yeah, or something yeah. like that, which they're both. I mean, if you were to, if you are a statistical person, an analytical person, and you were, and you had time to like study the numbers, both of those statements technically are true. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's just about what you want to put the focus on. Right. And like, so the one side wanted to put the focus on the fact that most people, perhaps I can't quantify this myself, but it's probably true. We're not looting and destroying buildings. Right. Okay, so then we'll say it's mostly peaceful. But then the other side wanted to be like, hey, people are looting and destroying buildings. This is a big deal. And we need to focus on that. So it's just like about what you think, right? Like the, the, the side that supported the cause was more likely to call these just protests. And the side that was like thinking that this was either didn't support the cause or thought that it was being misrepresented was focusing more on the, the riots and destruction, right? So it just reveals what you think about the underlying cause of the, of the protesters or the rioters. Well, really right? the story is kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I think it's ridiculous to be like focusing on mostly peaceful protests when you had millions and millions of dollars of, of, Americans who are losing their business and their livelihood. Yeah. You know, and that's not normal, right? Like in my yeah. lifetime, we've like, never seen anything like that. Right. So I, I, there were a lot of internal discussions at all sides and in many newsrooms about, do we call them riots or protests? 
are they riots or are they protests, right? Um, we often just use both words um, <laughs> because we're, we understand that that's a debate. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I have my personal opinion about it too and, and what I think about the media reporting. And I did a, a number of blogs during that time about media bias. Uh, um, one of the other examples was that this was during COVID, right? And so we had all these headlines about how Trump rallies were spreading COVID. But, but then- the protests then, were yeah, not. <laughs> yeah, so just things like that. It's just all about your underlying cause, what you think the direction of society needs to be and who's right and who's wrong wrong about um, their their political position, right? So, and, and these are easy, easy examples to point to. Yeah. Well, when you mention riots and protests, now I might be going, I'm like every once in a while, a question pops into my head and it kind of leads in a rabbit trail. So I don't know if this is specifically on topic, but specifically because journalism is a words game, right? And I have seen in my opinion, I've kind of seen like a redefinition of words. Yeah. Specifically when we're talking like riot and protest have kind of been used as if they're interchangeably, but they're like, they, it almost feels like they're trying to use them to represent the same thing, but it is depending on your political leaning, which one you will choose. When in fact, there is a clear difference between a protest and a riot. Right. We, I, we saw an example of this. If you ever want uh, just to see some interesting plays on language going on, look at the AP Stylebooks uh, Twitter account where they announce updates to their stylebook. Um, one of the ones that came up was that AP no longer wanted its reporters to call somebody a mistress. They wanted, so, so a married man that's sleeping with another woman. Don't call her a mist- mistress. Call her, I believe they said uh, it was like partner or lover or something that just like watered down. Yeah. Something that really watered down the severity of what that man would be doing in cheating on his wife. Right. And so there was a lot of people who are upset about this and saying that AP was sort of um, obscuring terms and eradicating distinctions that are necessary for you to understand the moral Yeah. That comes that and that could go into a whole other like rabbit trail, but that I think is rooted in this whole modern feminist movement also this like um postmodern movement of not really dictating or labeling things as morally wrong like everything is kind of like up to you and up to your determination which in the beginning that stayed in the realms of academia and now i think this is a great representation for people who maybe not be so aware how those postmodern subjective ideas have made their way into journalism. Yep, exactly. And so you're seeing language change, the use of words change as these uh, this underlying philosophy of basically moral relativity, right? That morality yeah. is just relative to the individual and whatever the individual wants is good and fine. Um, and, and each individual should decide what's good and fine for them. That's all bleeding over into how we're seeing bias manifest. Um, for sure. And that AP uh, style book change is a really good example. Um, but we highlight a lot at all sides how different word choices can reveal your underlying worldview um, and bias. And that's that's so much of the debate that's playing out. Um, and that's fascinating to me because like before we were just talking about how there are journalists now that feel that they have a almost moral responsibility to tell us what is good you know what I mean? Or yeah. what, you know, what ideas 
are good ideas to form, but you know, when you have that underlining current, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ridiculous for people to be like, well, where, like, where is this coming from? You know? Right. Yeah. And yeah, I was, I did, I was on a, a panel recently with a reporter who said she wants, she wishes we would just get rid of the term objectivity that we would just not have objective journalism anymore because she believes so strongly that, you know, certain communities need to be advocated for that they're, the advocacy that would benefit them should be front and center, right? So that really wow. is going to change how you report on things. And that's why we're seeing bias. We're seeing bias manifest because that is the underlying worldview of many reporters. Um, and, and the landscape does lean a certain way overwhelmingly as well. Um, so it can be hard to find alternative perspectives and to unearth those. Like we change our bias ratings over time as the bias of media outlets change over time and data shows that you know, they're moving more one way or the other. We have a very interesting graphic on our site showing you how different media outlets have changed their bias over time. A few have gone more to the center, but a lot of them are going like more left or more right, right? So it's becoming like more Which polarized. Which is much more polarizing. Yeah. And then, I, you know, you saying that, being on that panel and that journalist saying like that we should just get rid of objectivity. I mean, isn't that basically pr like a case or a promotion for propaganda? I mean, I believe it is. I, if you get rid of objective journalism, then everything is going to have an agenda behind it, right? Instead of just treating you as sort of a neutral viewer or reader who I'm going to give you the information, I'm going to give you the facts of what happened, um, and then you can decide how to apply those in your life or in your political beliefs, right? If we get rid of that baseline and we don't have people who believe it's their duty to remain neutral and to just provide the objective facts, then we're going to have this tailspin where none of us understand reality, right? And I think we're already starting to see that. People yeah. don't know what's true and false because so much of the information that we get 24 hours a day from all angles has an agenda behind it and people don't know what to believe. So one of the things that All Sides uh, does is it tries to cut through all that and say, okay, a, a way that you can establish reality and, and, and find the truth is just by looking at all of it and comparing across the spectrum, what's the left, right, and center saying, and then you can kind of discern for yourself. But I do have, uh, you know, sympathy for people who don't have time. A lot of people, yeah. they, just, they want the news to be quick and easy, but it's no longer, um, I don't think a lot of news is trustworthy on its own anymore. And that's why I think tools like all sides are important because then you can piece together the truth um, by looking at different perspectives. So, And I think, well, and especially if you have it, um, like put together all in one location with some quick breakdowns and stuff like that. Just by reviewing a site like All Sides, um, a few times you can start to kind of pick up where that media bias is. And then possibly, like for example, when I try and review the news and I'm trying to get a story, I typically do that. I go to All Sides, I go to some other websites that provide, you know, how in one place, how one story is being reported across all platforms, right? And then I'll take an article from each one and scan it and see what information they share and what information is maybe left out in each one and then kind of weigh that information that's being left out with the information that they're sharing to kind of help me determine, you know, what to be better informed. You know what I mean? Right. Because especially if like, if there's some stuff that is purpose, if I notice some stuff is being purposely left out or added in and it's almost conflicting with the information that they are reporting together, 
yeah. then I can kind of determine a little bit more about like where my decision should go. Right. Yeah. Because it's a little bit more of a, a balanced um, look. And I think with exercising that, I think it's like a muscle, you know? Yes. You'll get better at it even. Like you'll be able to spot things. Like even when I wrote the 12 types of bias guide, the, the way I was able to come up with those distinctions is just from reading the news so many times and noticing patterns, right? And I would notice when reporters would um, use specific like spin words or um, when they would like present an, an opinion statement as a fact um, or when they would uh, do like uh, omit things or whatever it may be. So um, the more you do that, the more you can filter more quickly and spot bias and, and spot the clues that maybe information is being manipulated in a certain direction or another. Um, it gets much easier, but it does, it is a muscle and it needs to be practiced. And um, it's just a little unfortunate that our media landscape is that polarized that people now need to like train themselves how to digest it. Um, I mean, media literacy has always been important. I would argue it's even more important now where it's just like, I mean, you used to turn the TV on and off. Now it's like we're, our phones are glued to our palms and it's just always in your face. So the, you know, the, th there are powerful, uh, forces that want you to think and behave and vote a certain way. Uh, and they're using information to, to do that. We really are in like an information war where people are using the media and, um, uh, to, to manipulate voting, to get you to support different policies or not support different policies. And it's hard to think for yourself, yeah. but it can be done. Uh, and, and, and that just requires getting a broader view, asking questions, being very critical of what you consume instead of blindly consuming it. Absolutely. And I've had these discussions, like I, I run a women's community and we do like a biweekly Zoom meeting. And we've had these discussions about trying to be, because they're all women, they're all moms, they're all busy. You know, not all of them are moms, but most of them are, and they're all working. And, and you just cannot be so ingrained in the news. But you also, I think, you know, when you talked about an information war. I absolutely believe that. I think we're in an information war. I think we're in a cultural war. And, you know, a lot of times people will associate the war, the term war as being something kinetic. And I just really like, don't think that's where we're going. It's really about information. Um, so I think it's important that we at least, everybody at least makes a, some semblance of an effort to be informed because if you're only letting yourself consume like the blips and blurbs that you see on social media, you are definitely much more susceptible to being manipulated into information as into actually being informed. Yep. Um, yep. And so that kind of leads me to ask you, cause like I'm older and I, I remember when the news was dogging a lot on bloggers and I'm mm. talking about like, this is during the Clinton administration, a little bit before that. I remember the Drudge Report and stuff like that was really, anybody who had the name blogger was completely trashed on. And the media kind of diss on them, but then eventually newspapers went out of business because everybody was print media. And now we have gone online, which is also kind of, I think, changed the dynamic of how information is informed. But specifically the practice of journalism has changed. So like before you would have journalists that were on site out there reporting, seeing things for themselves. And now I wonder because of the expense of that, is media becoming more laundered? Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. As it, like they'll say sources say, but the source is like every other news media that, or the first person that said a source. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Because they actually don't have the money, the time, the manpower to go out and do investigative reporting. Yep. This is a really good point. It's the difference between like a primary source and a secondary source, right? And a lot of people don't know what that means. Well, a primary source would be if I was on the ground at an event or at a protest and I hear, I record firsthand from somebody what they're saying or record firsthand what's going on versus getting information that's filtered through multiple people or multiple sources. And you'll often see media outlets just repeating other media outlets without actually reviewing uh, the primary material. Um, and, and so that does allow for a huge opportunity to manipulate information. I, I, there were a number of times where like the media would be like plastering. Um, I, here's, uh, this is a good example. Um, uh, last year, the media was running with this story that Trump had suggested injecting bleach to treat COVID. Yeah. Well, that was the headline. Saki, Saki literally just said it yesterday. Yeah, but if you actually watch the video clip of Trump during this moment, it, that's not what he said. He he suggested like, oh, maybe we could try like bleach something to get inside and disinfect. It, he obviously didn't sound very, you know, intelligent. Well, and, he's and not the most eloquent yeah. individual. Yeah, like it, it, he obviously is not a doctor and not that eloquent. And he, but he did not say we should all ingest or drink bleach to treat COVID. Like that's not what he said. And the media just like twisted that a little bit. And the only way you would know what he really said is by going back to the primary source and watching the video for yourself. And this happens a lot. And I actually think even with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, a lot of the, you know, misinformation that was out there about what happened is because people weren't going to the, the, the primary source of the videos of people who were on the ground. Um, so very, you're right. Very few reporters are doing this type of on the ground reporting anymore. A lot of them are in uh, office buildings in Manhattan and LA and DC, and that's where they're writing from. And they're not actually going to the places where the action is happening. Um, I do think that we saw that a lot, perhaps even during the last summer with the the protests and the riots, like how many reporters were actually on the ground. Um, there was a recent uh, reporter who told the post-millennial, I believe, and she was a writer for the New York Times talking to the post-millennial. She said that she had written uh, an article for the New York Times about what was going on in Kenosha. Yeah, and about the damage and the yeah. expense of the damage and everything. Yeah, and so she actually went there and she did investigative reporting. She did on the ground reporting and then they wouldn't run it until after the election, right? So even when you have investigative reporting, um, if there is a partisan agenda that the that the paper has, uh, then you know maybe it's it's not being uh, given the platform that maybe well, it deserves. That and I mean, there's a few instances of that where stories have been held up or buried because of an upcoming election. But the other thing that I see is specifically like when you're talking about, you know, we had these riots and, like, and we're, that's kind of becoming a theme in this conversation as our yeah. example. Yeah. But, um, you know, you had those that were almost becoming um, aggregators of information of, you know, I, and then reforming it and sending it out who were in offices and reporting what they believed was happening. But then I, there's been a huge rise of independent journalism, um, which a lot of the videos specifically of the riots written house of a lot of these on the ground events have come from these independent journalists. However, kind of going back to when I was talking about bloggers and print media back in the nineties, right now there seems to be this 
movement from the legacy media to like not label these independent journalists as true journalists. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I've seen that a lot. I've seen, I mean, honestly, the 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 reporter that comes to mind for me is Andy No. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know him, but he he has been reporting on the ground in Portland for years now, um, specifically on um, uh, Antifa. Antifa. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen it was odd because uh, he he always just seemed to, to me to be recording what was happening and telling you what was happening. He would post like um, video footage of the events um, and, you know, information about who was being arrested and things like that. And then the rest of the media started to call him like a provocateur or like a far right reporter or whatever it may be. But from what I could tell, he was, in my assessment, he was just reporting the facts of what was happening. Um, so there, there is a lot of safeguarding, I think, that goes on from the elite media institutions uh, where they, you know, uh, kind of want to safeguard their, uh, their maybe monopoly. Their on, legacy, which yeah, is their why legacy. we're co- Yeah. Yeah. And you have, and, and, and you do have these reporters kind of going, you know, off, off by themselves to, to do the job that they think the legacy outlets aren't doing well. Right. And some of those folks end up, uh, joining more like uh, smaller organizations or starting their own. I think knows with the post-millennial now, I think he's the editor there. Uh, but it, it, there's definitely a movement where a lot of the legacy outlets are not trusted so much. Um, but they still dominate the landscape. Those are the like. Well, that's I mean, they have the to. biggest budgets right now right. because they're institutional, and they. It's not. I mean, all the major companies, institutions, especially when we start getting into the whole cultural landscape about you know social justice and everything, you know, you get yeah. a lot of money. I mean, even it's funny because Fox News. I would categorize it as legacy media, but you look at their advertisements versus CNN advertisements, even though CNN isn't performing as well. And it just goes to show like the money that is, there's an interesting amount of money that's being put into these institutions that I think are on their last legs, but what's keeping them up is the shared, um, ideology that they have. Mm. And so they're, they're prioritizing the social messaging or that image that they care, um, over actual profit because CNN is not CNN and MSNBC are not performing nearly as well as some of the even independent media or Fox news, for example. And then along that, I'd like to your opinion, if you want to share, what are maybe some news outlets that you think, are not legacy media or are up and comers or are maybe worth, you know, if somebody hasn't heard about them, you know, checking out and, and it can be like the spectrum of the political landscape or whoever is in the center. You know what I mean? Do you have anybody in particular that you like to direct people to? I mean, I have my media outlets that I personally think are doing a better job than others. I try not to be too public about that though, since we are reading media bias and, and um, trying yeah, that's what I was like. I was yeah. going to ask you the question, but I wasn't hundred percent sure because of where like you're at, yeah. which is completely fair, and I think um, is good practice on your part. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's fine. Like part part of the whole ethos of all sides is that each person that works there has their own bias, and we're transparent about that. Like you can go to our team page and see that like 
I'm a little more on the right. Our managing editor is in the center. Some of our other editors are on the left, right? So we actually are transparent about our biases. So um, there's no pretense that like um, we're perfectly neutral individuals or anything like that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, th there are there are a lot of like um, very good, there are reporters who are doing good work who are not part of the legacy institutions. Um, and there's even people who are doing like commentary who aren't part of legacy institutions. Um, I have found that Twitter is an interesting place to get into uh, if you can stomach it, because sometimes it can be a little bit a lot, but um, that, that is a good place to kind of dig into and, and sort of like start to find maybe people who aren't part of these, uh, these old guard institutions who are like, that's where I found Andy. No. And I was like, Oh, this yeah, is and I think cool. that's a really a lot. It's funny because I do say sometimes, you know, Twitter is a dumpster fire or, it is. you know, with some <laughs> things, yeah. however, it, everyone who is in media is on Twitter. Exactly. Even though it's the smallest platform, like of all the social media platforms, it is the smallest used platform. But I think it's because most it's mostly professionals. It's really mostly news professionals, uh, activists, you know, social justice, that kind of thing. So it does become kind of a little bit of a, a weird space and kind of a hotbed. But I personally have found some really amazing um, commentators, uh, journalists and everything on Twitter. So as long as, and the good thing about Twitter is that just like any other platform, you can cater your feed to your taste. So I like to have like a list that I check regularly. And then I go off and poke around every once in a while when I, and, and see what I can run into when I can uh, stomach it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's hard. And, and that's also another, like all sides has um, a presence on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, so we actually try to be an account that can like feed you a diversity of, of uh, news articles from different sources, uh, which can help to, you know, ex expose yourself to different perspectives. Um, so these tools can be used consciously um, to explore, to, you know, maybe get outside of the like mainstream narrative, see what other people are saying, um, wh whatever it may be. And that can be very be beneficial. And I mean, all sides rates over 800 media outlets. So we have our media bias chart. I don't know if you've seen it with yeah. some of the major outlets showing you where they all fall, but uh, that's only like, I I'm not sure how many, maybe 80 to hundred of our outlets, uh, we've rated like 800. So, and some of those with different confidence levels, some of them were more confident in the rating. Well, and I was going to ask, but, how do you guys rate? Is it, is, do you have like a panel? Do you have an algorithm? Is it like a meeting that you have every quarter? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, how do you of, do that rating? We have different methodologies. Uh, one way, it, our, one of our most robust methodologies is a blind bias survey. So we'll actually give people content from me, from a, from multiple media outlets and say, what do you think the bias of this particular outlet is? And it's blind. So they don't know that it's from CNN. They don't know that it's from the Epic Times or whatever. And they are just assessing the bias of the content. So they're not bringing in their preconceived notions of what they think that brand is. They're yeah. just assessing how it's written. So uh, we do those uh, surveys for a lot of media outlets. Uh, the results of those are very can be very interesting. Uh, and, uh, just how do people perceive this content when they don't know where it's coming from? Uh, and then we also have, 
uh, editorial reviews, which are not blind. And that's the when the All Sides team gets together and we have people from across the political spectrum review the works of a media outlet. We're looking at everything because they're not blind. We see the photos. We see how they've positioned the story on their homepage. We know the brand. All of that is transparent. And we um, look at it and kind of individually assess what we think the bias is. And then we come together and discuss um, so those are our two main uh, methodologies for rating bias. Uh, we have other uh, uh, things that we'll incorporate. Sometimes uh, I, there will be academic studies from folks who have assessed bias using different methods. We'll incorporate that. Um, sometimes we'll do independent research. Um, so, um, but anybody can sign up for a blind bias survey. So if anybody is listening to this and wants to help us rate bias, um, you can go to our website and uh, sign up for a blind bias survey. And we love to have input from people from all sides of the political spectrum. Obviously. I think that would actually be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. I think it's quite fun. But um, I'm also not, I'm not the average person. <laughs> um, what I was going to say, I, you said something earlier that kind of triggered a question and I lost it. You were talking about, I hate it when that happens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about Twitter and yeah, and independent reporters. It'll come to me. It'll come to yeah. me again eventually, but along you know, just to kind of wrap ourselves up in case that doesn't come back to me. <laughs> um, what, like with where the media is, the bias, it seems like it, I, you know, I don't, I try not to be a negative, like I'm not a pessimist. I'm definitely a realist. Um, so I don't like think everything is like horrible or the worst or anything, but I know things are bad. At least that's how I see them. And that's my personal opinion. But with the state of where journalism and media is right now, where it feels so polarizing and we're having to do all of this discoding, do you think there is a solution to that? Like, do you, if you were to say, we're going to get through to the other side of the tunnel, possibly either how do we get there or maybe what that would look like? Have you ever mm. talked about that and thought through that? That's a good question. I Have remembered I... my, I remembered what I was going to say. Oh, great. <laughs> Let's put a pin on that. <laughs> okay. Do I can answer your first question or you can. Yeah, no, go you. ahead. I'm going to, okay. I'm going to, I'll go back, but let okay. me write, answer the question while I write that one down. <laughs> okay, great. Um, no, th that is a good question that I haven't given a lot of thought to because a lot is so up in the air. Technology is changing so rapidly. Um, I personally, I can tell you what I personally would like to see that I think would help us get to the other side. Although I do not think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I would like to see a return to the traditional journalistic standards of objectivity and just telling you what's going on or, or even um, telling you what both sides are saying. And I try to do this in my writing for all sides for our blog is I'll say, well, here's what the left is saying and here's what the right is saying. So that way you don't, it can be a little bit more colorful in the sense that you, you aren't just giving boring facts. You're also saying, and here's the commentary on both sides, but you're giving the commentary on both sides. Um, so in one piece, you're getting uh, both perspectives on the event. Uh, so I'd like to see journalists either, you know, go back to objective standards. Again, I don't know how that would be feasible with the current business models. Um, well, do, and although, I, that was going to be a good question because do you, I mean, it, it's probably a little bit of both, but do you think that is the business model or do you think we also have this like cultural undercurrent that is making it worse? Because I think there is a way to do it and have a business model right? without, you know, so much divisiveness and still 
make money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I get it. I understand that like what they call like shit posting and everything like that is what gets reactions. Yep. But I, I do think, you know, I think there's a possibility and I, I wonder if it's more of a, of this cultural undercurrent that we have going on that's yeah, causing it. That's absolutely a major part of it that can't be overlooked. Cause honestly, when you look at polls of Americans, they say they want objective unbiased news. Like they don't want partisan news. They just want to know what's happening. Right. Um, I mean, and what people say they want can often be different from how they behave. So <laughs> there's that aspect, but, um, it, you know, it does make you think that there is a market for this. Um, so, uh, it's not necessarily that you have to be inflammatory and partisan to make money. Um, but yeah, I do think that the, the underlying, uh, issue to what we're seeing in the press is this culture war, um, this sort of, um, battle that's going on about like, what is America about? What, what foundational ideals was she built on? Um, do we uh, uphold those or tear them down or build something? Yeah. Like that's what's really going on. Um, and that's why you're seeing such different approaches to media and information from the people who are producing it. Well, and it just goes show, it shows the chaos that can happen when you have a group of people, you know, a nation of people that aren't anchored with at least some of the same core values. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. Then you just get, you get fighting and, yeah. and, and if it's not, and it's, and then it's a battle for, we, we no longer battle physically, right? People, no. ancient peoples battled physically. We're honestly quite lucky that that's not the case, but now we're battling psychologically and it's like, you know, join my side in the sense of not like, like I'm going to like, you know, slaughter you. If you don't, it's like, I'm going to use information to get you over to my side. Yeah. I'm gonna or I'm going to get you canceled or I'm going to yeah. have you, or I'm going to create a conflict right. campaign. Social pressure. Yeah. Campaigning. Yeah. So it's a totally different ball game. Yeah. And I think people are waking up to like the fact that that is how wars are now waged in the digital age. Um, not physically, but, um, with social pressure and with information and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, it is hard to see how, where it goes from here because we do have, um, just different factions in this country with very different ideas of the nation they want to build and uphold. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's it daunting to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's daunting. Yeah. Well, and just to kind of touch on what, because I, I mentioned that I remembered what I was going to say and, and whoever's listening, they're really like, is she going to mention what she's going to say? <laughs> so <laughs> when you were talking about how, like to kind of tie this all together, I think it's really cool that there are people out there such as all sides and yourself that see that need that people want to be informed and they want to have some semblance of balanced information. Um, and we don't all have time to be running around all over the internet, seeing different stories. So it's, it's cool that there is a website such as all sides to do that. And the blind, um, what was it called? The blind bias? What blind bias survey? Yeah. The yeah. blind bias survey is cool, but I think it's also, a good that you guys have actual people because words are one thing, but when you talked about analyzing the entire article and looking at the placement of images, what image they choose, maybe what, um, quote they might pull out, you know how, like mm -hmm. you might pull out a quote and bold yep. it where, like where they bury the lead, so yep. to speak, you know, yep. and all that kind of, cause even the construction of where the information lands in the article, yep. um, is a big thing. So, um, I just kind of wanted to comment on that and point it out that people understand 
that it's not just the word, what we're not manip- being manipulated just with, or we're not being manipulated might be a hyperbolic word, but we were not being guided mm-hmm. <laughs> by just words, but also the, you know, how it's structured and how it's presented to us. Too. Yep. Yeah. All of that plays in like what photos are being chosen. Um, you, yeah, and you alluded to like, um, we, we call it bias by viewpoint placement. So we'll see a, a lot of the times in an article, say it's about like Texas is abortion law or something. Uh, if a reporter interviews a representative from the ACLU and maybe like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which are both more left-leaning organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, ACLU didn't used to be, but now they are. Um, uh, then, but they don't include a quote from someone who has a different perspective. Uh, or they bury it at the end. And, and the alternative perspective is like the last thing you read, right? Um, reporters know that most people are only going to read the first couple paragraphs and maybe the headline. Um, so bias by viewpoint placement is a is something that we try to help people to become aware of uh, because you might not be getting a different argument on the issue uh, if the reporter is just interviewing one side, right? And so our editorial reviews capture that. Our, our blind surveys do capture that. We're, we're more limited in the amount of content we can put in those surveys because people are they're not paid to take them. You know, yeah. we're asking people to take their own time to do it. Um, and we're grateful. A lot of people do take those surveys and it's very helpful to us. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot, lot, lot of decisions that are being made in the newsroom uh, and with digital media that absolutely uh, influences the perception that you're going to come away with when you're on that website. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up, but this was, I, I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> so could I, it's fascinating. <laughs> So, but thank you so much for hanging out and having this conversation with me. If anybody wants to follow you, see what you do. I mean, obviously we've mentioned allsides.com a few times, but where can they find you and uh, follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Julie writes, like writing, Julie writes. And then um, I also have a website, juliemastrini.com. You could also check out, I write for EV magazine. Um, So my articles are listed there as well. Awesome publication, by the way. I absolutely love Evie. Uh, Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us. I will be sure to include your links to your articles and your Twitter and everything in the show notes. And you guys go follow her, give her some love. She's got some really great content and it's uh, another awesome lady to support. So thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks so much for listening to It's Mercedes, Honest Conversations for Freedom-Minded Women. You can find the show notes for this episode at itsmissady.com. And if you're loving the podcast, I would be so honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. And if you would like to have conversations like this with other freedom-minded women, visit libertasisters.com, a community of women founded on the values of femininity, self-reliance, and freedom. You can also connect with me on Instagram at itsmissady or join my email list. Until next time, stay free and stay honest.